uh, I want to continue talking about navigating uh, the troubles of our time. To do that, it became pretty obvious that one of the topics we were going to have to talk about was the topic of conspiracy theories. Now, to start with, I need to kind of put some things in front of you. I absolutely believe that men and women can be and are tempted by power. I believe that because the Bible tells me so. I absolutely believe that men and women with power and people with prominence within certain societies will give in to the temptation to abuse that power and prominence, and I believe that because the Bible says so. So I don't want you to take anything I'm going to say this morning as a denial that bad people can be up to no good. The Gospels, in fact, tell us that the Sanhedrin conspired together to have Jesus arrested and killed. The fact that we have conspiracy laws on the book in our nation, you cannot conspire with people to commit fraud. You cannot conspire with people to commit murder. It speaks to the reality that conspiracies do happen. My issue or my concern is that we need to recognize that there is a line that Christians cannot cross. I would suggest to you this morning that because we live in the information age and because so many of us are plugged in with every amount of information or news source at our fingertips, in our pockets, clipped to our belts, that unfortunately the spread of misinformation or the spread of false information has become quite an epidemic. And unfortunately, sometimes, and I'm not saying all the time and with every issue, sometimes those conspiracy theories cross a line and fall into what the Bible would call slander. Slander is when we speak or share information that cannot or will never be verified And the result is damage to the reputation of a person or a group of people. You might remember several years ago, a book came out, a completely fictional book came out called The Da Vinci Code. A book about this grand conspiracy that church leaders back in the day were working together to keep people from knowing the true story of Jesus. And no matter how many times the author went on TV or gave an interview saying that the book was completely fictional, people like to say, maybe there's some truth to it. Maybe it really did happen. Maybe Jesus really does have a wife and has descendants today. And as a result of a completely fictional book, Jesus, the church, Christians were slandered. Our main text this morning is coming from Acts 17. It's not the only text I'll reference, but this is our base camp. The Apostle Paul has been sent to Athens, Greece for more or less to keep him out of trouble. When he gets there, he he does what most of us would do. If you went to Athens today, what would you do after you got there? You would go sightseeing. And that's essentially what Paul does. He begins to observe the city. We also see him in the uh, marketplace, probably because he has to do some shopping And like I said, he begins to observe what's going on in the city. He begins to hear what people are talking about. And he has these conversations with people 
And as a result, he gets this invitation to speak to a gathering of what would be considered the most prominent members of 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 the city. Now, this comes probably because Paul has credentials. Okay, Paul was uh, a highly educated man. He was a naturally born Roman citizen. uh, And he came likely from an upper class background. And the result of that invitation is a sermon that many theologians today is really the standard for speaking to a society like ours today. My goal this morning is twofold. The first is to help us recognize that during times of trouble and during our times of trouble, it can, also create, it can often create conditions where slanderous conspiracy theories can flourish. And the second goal, and probably the better goal, is to show you why as Christians we have no business participating in their spread. Three points for you this morning. Number one, slanderous conspiracy theories come from the demonic Slanderous conspiracy theories come from the demonic. I want you to note verses 22 and 23. Paul begins his, uh, his lecture or his speech by saying, I have made an observation. Literally translated, he says, I have noticed how religious you are. The King James uses the idea there of superstitious. Paul says, I, I, I come to this conclusion because I went around your city and I observed all of these objects of worship. Verse 29, he compare, or he talks about these objects of worship as being images made from gold and stone and silver. In other words, he describes them as idols, as he does all the way back, I think, in verse 16. This should not be a surprise. Athens is a modern city, and so it's going to be tied up in the modern religion. The modern religion of the day was polytheism, or the, the worship of many different gods. And so here in Athens, Paul is saying, my observation is, you are so religious that you even have a marker dedicated dedicated to a God you don't even know. If we go to the letters that are written to Corinth, which was another major Greek city, we find that this was quite common in the larger Greek cities to have all of these idols. And we find out that it was a common practice for the people of those cities to go into worship or make sacrifices to those idols. Particularly in Corinthians, it talks about sacrificing meat. But in 1 Corinthians, Paul says these kind of idols, he calls them dumb. And what he means by that, he says they don't have any power. They're just really hunks of stone, hunks of wood. But we also know that he also tells the Corinthians that these kind of idols are hotbeds of demonic activity. So if these idols are hotbeds of demonic activity, what should we expect to find? Well, in James chapter 3, he tells us what we can identify as demonic activity. He lists things, for example, like bitter jealousy. You want to know when the demonic are active? Look for people who walk around intending and desiring revenge. If you want to know where demons are active, he says, look for the places where the heart is full of selfish ambition. I want you to note that that word selfish ambition is where we get our English word politician. And so the idea there is he's saying, if you want to know where there's demonic activity, look for people who are manipulating others to get what they want. And then he says, this kind of attitude, he says, he comes from the demonic. In verse 16 of chapter 3 in James, He says, the demonic, they give birth to divisiveness. And there, we have the word for slanderous speech. 
And he says they also the work or the actions of the mnemonic will bring about all sorts of justification for vile behavior. We could add to those texts the fact that slander is listed in Romans 1 as something that is done by people who hate God. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and we watch as Satan slanders God, claiming that God was conspiring to keep Adam and Eve from reaching their potential. That God was conspiring to keep them from becoming like God. Paul had to deal with this in ministry. There were those who were coming along and, and claiming that Paul was trying to keep money from the church. Paul was there simply to rob them. Or they would claim that Paul was there simply to, to share a little bit but not tell them everything. And in his response to those claims, Paul described those false teachers as people who spread the doctrine of demons. And so it's not a surprise when we look out into our society and we see all the idols we see in our, our nation. And we see all the people who bow down or bend the knee to those idols. And we say, look at the vile behavior that is now justified. And we say, look at all the divisiveness. And we see, look at the work of demons. And we need to remind ourselves that slanderous conspiracy theories are on that list. You ever had somebody say something about you that clearly wasn't true? A few weeks ago in Sunday school, I made the claim that Olga secretly liked to email people as a Nigerian prince. I appreciate her good humor. But what if somebody said that all redheads are liars? All Scotsmen are drunk. Some of us would get angry. And we would say there's, there's no basis, there's no truth to it. We, we reject claims like that quite outright. And we should have that same sense of injustice when unverifiable truth is shared about a pastor, when it's shared about a celebrity, when it's talked about in a whole social economic group like millennials. We certainly don't, we don't tolerate it when it comes to being spread, that kind of stuff about certain ethnicities. And we even don't tolerate it when it comes to politicians we don't like. Because it is the work of demons. We instead should be the kind of people who take the extra step to find the details. And when it becomes very clear that we can't know everything, we can be the people content not knowing everything. And we don't share things that we cannot verify, things that we cannot rationally bring about. We are reminded that Jesus told us, told us that we, we are going to be judged by every careless word we speak. And I would assure you the phrase, I believed it was true, will not fly on the last day. The Bible says we have no business dabbling in the realm of the demonic. Number two this morning. Slanderous conspiracy theories are an act of rebellion. Slanderous conspiracy theories are an act of rebellion. Go to verse 21. In that brief verse, Luke is explaining to the reader the cultural context Paul was ministering in, the context in which he was about to speak. 
Here we have a group of people who either grew up in Athens or moved to Athens for the sole purpose of doing one thing, to tell or to hear something new. Think about it this way. There was a whole section of society that was built on the idea that you could be famous if you could come up with an original thought. And so there was this pressure. The more radical you become in your philosophy, the greater you're seen within this academic world. And for some reason, what Paul was saying was beginning to strike a chord with some of them. But there's something we need to clarify here. See, there were Jews in Athens. We see that uh, in, in, uh, in verse 17. They did not look at Paul as bringing some new form of Judaism. You see, for them, Christianity sounded like something they had never heard before. And so they, they invite Paul to give this clear explanation. But I want you to understand, they don't ask Paul to do this because they're seekers. They don't ask Paul to do this because they're curious about their spiritual state. They do it because they're egomaniacs. Let me explain what I mean. In Isaiah 42, God declares that he does not share his glory. And part of God's glory is being all-knowing. And the Bible tells us the kings of the earth have fallen just like Lucifer due to the attempt to be like God. And these guys here in Athens are driven not by a command from God to discover, as he tells us in Genesis. Their driven motivation is to want to be like God. They want to know it all. This was not an interest in the truth. This was a want for glory that belonged only to God, which is the textbook definition of rebellion. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon describes the pursuit of knowledge as something that can distract us from the command to fear God. This isn't, you see, this isn't about discovering gravity or trying to invent a better wristwatch. As it is with me, bring it back to food. Good food that you might enjoy this afternoon should lead and can lead to you giving thanks and worship to God. Lord, I absolutely love the discovery of bacon. Thank you. And you know what? There are, uh, there are parks and there are park patrolmen who are in Wisconsin doing nothing but cataloging the deer population. And seeing the majestic uh, animals such as the white-tailed deer might lead him to go, Lord, thank you. Lord, you're amazing. So you see, knowledge or food can lead to worship. But we also know the pursuit of eating can become gluttony. The pursuit of knowledge is a wonderful thing. God, we are commanded to go and invent and discover. But the pursuit of knowledge can quickly turn into rebellion. One of the realities of knowledge is that it makes us feel safe. If I can tell my kids authoritatively that the cut on their finger means they're not going to die, most of the time they'll stop crying. But even when a doctor gives us bad news, there's some comfort in knowledge. But then think about how it can really, knowledge can really affect you emotionally. One morning you wake up, your favorite news source says that your candidate is up in the polls, and you feel good. 
The birds are chirping, your spouse is wonderful, and you love living in the country. As you wake up the next day, your candidate's down in the polls. Now the birds won't shut up. Your spouse never rinses out their bowl. And why do you have to live in Nebraska where everything's so far away? See how easily you can be manipulated into a rebellious attitude? We understand, we should understand that we live in a time where headlines and articles and social media posts and comment sections, they're being used by people to encourage rebellious behavior. And we see the results of it, don't we? We see it in riots and we see it in divisiveness, even in the church. And we should see it even in the spread of slanderous conspiracy theories. But that leads to a question. How do we handle potentially damaging information in the information age? And once again, the Bible comes through for us. We can start by using the first standard, and the standard is the false prophet standard. If someone or source claims that an event is going to happen and it doesn't, or they come around and claim that they know a secret that turns out not to be true, the Bible says clearly they are a what? A false prophet. They should be given zero credibility. And the Bible is going to include anybody who uses uh, or anybody who spreads the message of the false prophet. But then it comes to the information itself. What do we do with that? Well, the Bible tells us, first of all, that we do not accept he said, she said scenarios. And I would tell you this morning that includes anonymous sources. I don't uh, tolerate the idea that somebody's going to come to me and say, you know, I'm hearing people say, because the first question on my mouth is going to be, who said it? I'm not going to give it any consideration unless you're willing to give me a name. So you think about it. If a celebrity couple has a fight, and she says that he hit her, and we don't have any evidence, we don't go around telling people he did, and we don't go around telling people he didn't. But let's say, the next standard then, let's say that she's got two witnesses that say he did. Well, the Bible will tell us if we have two witnesses that testify, that begins the process of the investigation. And so we would say, okay, if we've got some witnesses here, this is a probability. We're going to say this encourage an investigation here. We're going to call the authorities. We're going to say they need to be involved the Bible says we still don't say whether or not he did or didn't do it. But then we come to the next step. If we have two witnesses and we have forensic evidence and the authorities have determined guilt, we who live a hundred miles away and we who are a hundred times removed from the information are still careful. But then if he is truly found guilty by the authority who has the right to do so, we then say it is highly likely that he hit her. And you might say this morning, that's a lot of steps. It is. And I suspect God gave them to us because the human heart doesn't need a lot of justification to rebel. Number three. Slanderous conspiracy theories always produce a competing gospel. 
Slanderous conspiracy theories always produce a competing gospel. Go all the way back to verse 16. They were told as Paul encounters this city full of idols, he is provoked, stirred up in his spirit to preach the gospel. And as was his practice, everywhere he went, when he was stirred up or provoked, he he would run straight to the synagogue. And there he would argue with the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But after that, the text tells us he moved to the marketplace, trying to have conversation with shopkeepers and, and shoppers, trying to talk to them about Christ. Now we go all the way down to verses 30 to 34, and Paul lays out the gospel for these heavy-duty Athens thinkers, and we see their response. The moment they heard Paul talk about Jesus being raised from the dead, and that being proof that Jesus will one day judge all men, it changed everything. Some of the group just outright mocked him. Others wanted to just continue the debate some other time. Just a handful believed. As Paul will later explain in 1 Corinthians, you see the world sees the gospel as foolishness. And the world is full of competing messages about humanity because humanity is convinced that we can arrive at salvation by our own wisdom and knowledge. See, this wasn't a problem because he was preaching the gospel in a new place. Because this was a problem in his church plants. It seemed as though every time Paul would plant a church and then move along, there were those who were going to come behind him and claim that Paul had conspired to keep people from knowing the truth. And the result of this, in at least one case, the people began to dabble in what would rightly be called conspiracy theories. Paul describes them in 1 Timothy as irreverent myths that do nothing but lead to speculation. He describes those things as anti-gospel. He describes them as false teachers using these things to sneak in another gospel. They would say things like, yes, Christ died for your sins, but if you really want to make sure you're going to heaven, you've got to believe there's aliens at Area 51. The Bible doesn't look at that and go, wow, that person's really... They might be wrong, but at least they're really spiritual. The Bible says, no, no, that's that's a different gospel and should be cursed. When we consider ourselves in danger, it is our most natural inclination to find a way out of that danger. We start looking for saviors and we start looking for salvation. And sometimes that desire gets filled up by a movement... You see, the images you're seeing of protesters trying to bully people into raising their fists are people who have believed a different gospel. They have believed a slanderous conspiracy theory and in turn have produced a competing gospel. Politicians absolutely love to present themselves as saviors. Elect me and you will be saved. A competing gospel. And Christians, unfortunately, can often be marks for these kind of things. We get caught up in the gospel of information. People, maybe we could call it the gospel of, the gospel of gossip. If you, the idea being, if you could simply be informed enough, you could be saved from the dangers coming. That our nation could be saved if only enough people knew that uh, the, the secret plot being put together by Anthony Fauci. 
that people could be saved from the coronavirus if they only knew that it was a secret bioweapon created by Bill Gates. That people wouldn't get sick if they only knew that the virus came as secret side effects of 5G towers. And even if any of those things turned out to be true, there's still a problem. There is no salvation, there's no Savior in any of it. So believing that racial tensions are purposely being stirred up by foreign governments for the purpose of destroying America doesn't actually solve the problem of racial tension in America. Only Jesus' gospel can do that. Knowing that or believing that COVID-19 is a diversion created by the deep state to unseat Donald Trump doesn't actually give any hope to those who are dying of it. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ does that. Christianity is not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and the secret alien complex at Area 51 and you will be saved. We understand, I want you to understand what I'm saying. The passing around of slanderous conspiracy theories creates competing gospel messages. And they compete against the only gospel message that can actually save. So just as Paul encountered in Athens, we live in a time and a place that is the perfect breeding ground for the production and spread of slanderous conspiracy theories. And by God's grace, we also see why Christians have no business being involved in the creation or spread of those theories. They are the tools of the demonic. They encourage rebellion and they produce messages that compete and contradict the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, these times present us with an urgent challenge to distinguish ourselves as people who want nothing to do with secret truths. And everything to do with a very public Jesus and a very public gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for that gospel. The gospel that truly sets people free. Lord, may we hold it fast, keep it close. May it provide us a filter. May we never seek to spread anything to compete with it or anything, Father, that contradicts it. I thank you for your word and how it helps us to navigate troubling times. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.